Okay, well, good morning everybody again. So, we're going to start a new series. Um, as I think Sarah mentioned, we're going to be uh, speaking out of Galatians, which is in the New Testament. And so I'm kind of going to intro it this week, talk a little bit about out of the first few verses of Galatians 1. But we're going to be in this for a little while. So I would really encourage you, if you don't have anything on Galatians, to maybe buy a commentary. There's some good ones out there. We can send around some suggestions on some quite accessible ones but it's worth I think maybe having something that kind of helps you understand what you're reading um, but we can send that around but a bit of a little bit of background before we get into it Galatians was written by Paul the Apostle Paul if you know anything about him he was you're reading the Acts of the Apostles about him uh, of basically how he first comes onto the scene as someone who's persecuting the church he is a teacher of the law he is a pharisee of pharisees he's he knows his stuff and when the church erupts into life in the first few chapters of acts he is definitely on the side of of basically being anti the church he oversees he's there when stephen is stoned and murdered as and paul is there and then you see him beginning to persecute the church going from house to house finding christians throwing them in prison so he had some authority and then you read about his conversion if you know that story and then he becomes this kind of like apostolic church planting guy who starts to plant churches all over the place, then moves on but stays in contact with them. And letters that we read of his, like this, are letters back to churches that he's been obviously really connected with. And scholars reckon that this is written somewhere around AD 50, so sort of 20 years or so after the death of Jesus. So that's where most people place this letter. So quite quite early days in terms of the church and he's writing to the churches in Galatia which is kind of modern day Turkey northern central Turkey and if you know anything about this letter and it's really helpful to know this because if you don't know this you might understand the letter that he's addressing a particular problem or issue in the church and often you need to when we read the bible we do need to work out is the person addressing a particular issue or is he writing something kind of just universally applicable now, there are obviously totally universally applicable principles and teachings in the, the letter of Galatians, but he's addressing an issue. And the issue is, because what happens is, to begin with, as the church erupts in Acts 2, Pentecost, and the church's birth, primarily it's Jewish people becoming Christians, but then the church is scattered through persecution, which means that it goes beyond the Jewish nation and it's Gentile Christians, i.e. non-Jewish people of Jewish ethnicity, who start to become Christians, so I would be considered a Gentile. Most of us would be considered Gentiles, I'm sure. And it's Gentiles who start to get saved. And so he's in Galatia. This is Gentile Christians. And what happens is Jewish Christians start turning up and saying, hey, you've come to faith. That's great. But really what you now need to do is you need to adopt some Jewish customs, some Jewish rituals uh, in order to really be accepted by God, in order to be really favored by God, to be fully in Actually, there's some other things you need to do. And if you know the tone of this book at all, we'll read the first few verses in a minute. Paul is not happy. And it would be a bit like, you know, we're planting this church together in Rotterdam, aren't we? And let's say Sarah and I go off for six months and, and then we hear while we're away that some people have turned up and they're starting to teach in the church and they're starting to teach some stuff which we just feel like, man, that's just not okay. And that is what's going on here. He is completely uncomfortable with the influence these other people are having in the church. So that's a little bit of the background. And obviously, if you get a commentary, you'll be able to read a lot more than that. But this is 
we're just going to read the first nine verses of Galatians 1. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to come up on the screen. Uh, but obviously, if you do have a Bible, it'd be great to follow it. And I'm going to read from the NIV. And this is what it says. Paul, an apostle, <laughs> he, he's just so you know, he's clearly making very clear his credentials here. Sent not from men, not by, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. So in other words, good I'm, yeah, good referencing, exactly. Just so you know who I am, Jesus sent me, okay? Not other men, Jesus has sent me, who raised him from the dead, from the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's about the most positive thing he says at the start of the letter. And then he goes, right? I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse, as we have already said. And so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Now, I don't know if you've ever uh, received a feisty letter from someone. Yeah. Or a feisty email, emails occasionally. By the way, if you're ever going to write something a little bit controversial, a little bit confrontational, I would never put it in an email, just by the way. But occasionally you get those kind of emails, right? Like maybe at work. When I first worked for a church, and I remember preaching in the church, I got a seven-page letter from someone in the church complaining about my preaching. But Sarah said sorry to me after sending that letter. And uh, no, it wasn't Sarah really. Okay, it wasn't Sarah. But it was, it was a true story. Someone did write to me a seven-page letter complaining about my preaching. Um, it wasn't the greatest letter I've ever uh, received in my life. But occasionally we get those kind of emails or communications or whatever. And Paul is sending... Actually, it's an affectionate letter, actually. It's not a complaint. But it is a pretty in-your-face kind of letter to the church. He is not happy. Now, if you know the New Testament and you read through the other epistles, what you'll find is Paul doesn't normally start like this. Right? He says some nice things to people. Like So the church in Ephesus, he says this, ever since I've heard about you, I've not stopped giving thanks, remembering you in my prayers. That's a nice way to start. Philippians, I thank God every time I remember you. I always pray with joy because of our partnership in the gospel. Corinth, I always thank God, my God, for you because of the grace given to you in Christ Jesus. Galatians, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you. So you get the idea, right? Something is wrong. I mean, Corinthians, there's some stuff that's going wrong in the church in 1 Corinthians, right? Which he does address. But even that letter is, is warm at the start. But this one, he is, he's, he's blunt and he's direct. And he's warning them. And if, if you are fortunate enough to have children or, or you, you know, maybe small children in your extended family or you've ever worked with small children, you'll know that at times you have to warn them. Because when they reach about a year and a half, they become dangerously mobile. But they have no sense of common sense or whatever, you know, don't stick your fingers in the plug kind of comments, yeah? Or don't walk so close to the road. Or if you go out in the hills, don't walk right by the edge of the cliff. Or those kind of comments. Or, 
or as happens in our house right now to the teenagers, maybe you want to use your hands when you're on that bike. That kind of saying, which is one of my favourite ones to which I don't get uh, listened to. He's basically warning them. He's basically going, stop. We used to have a car park in our church uh, where we used to hire a, a kind of a, a playground from a school for, as a car park. And I don't, have anybody else ever been to a church that's kind of hired car parking spaces? Anybody else? Our church did. And <laughs> for some reason, I don't know, the people who used to, the volunteers who used to run the car park seemed to think that as soon as we drove into that space, all of us who'd been driving for years and able to park our car on our own, almost every day, without any assistance, suddenly needed three people to assist us into a space. It was like they did it like a kind of like, like, like parking a plane. So you drive in, and they would like, and they'd like, no, 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 here, here, come, 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 closer, closer. And then they'd go, stop, like that. And I'm like, I know how to park my car. But bizarrely at church, these guys decided we had no idea. Well, Paul is kind of going, stop, right? It's, that's, that's, the, that's the kind of letter, the way you need to read this letter. He is concerned, he is warning them, and he's warning them of consequences and implications of things that they are, are beginning to believe and he's saying there are huge implications for the way you're moving and the way you're thinking that you can't even see. And that is why he is so animated about the whole thing. And what he says is, he says, I'm astonished that you are deserting. The word is desertion. Now, when we think of desertion, I don't know what you think of. I think of people who leave the army. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they, they run away. They they, in the midst of the battle, they literally leave. They're physically walking away. So you think when you read this and he's writing to a church that he must be talking about people who are literally leaving. But he's not talking about people who are leaving. It's a different. It's not as obvious or as clear cut in terms of desertion as we think of that word. Paul is talking. It's quite subtle, actually. And that's what's so dangerous about it. He's talking about people who are physically in the church, not going anywhere. So they're still around, still very much involved. But he's writing about people who are shifting the way they see things, the way they think about things, the way they view the gospel. And he says, it's like desertion. What it means is it's very possible to be part of a church, come to church every week, even to do things, and in your heart or in your mind be shifting and deserting. So we can be physically present in the room, great, but in our hearts and in our minds we can be deserting, he's saying. These guys are in the room, and Paul's going, I'm astonished you are deserting. You're leaving. And it's subtle, because they're, they're in the room, but they're deserting. And what's, the other thing that's subtle about this, which is another reason why it's so deadly, he says, is basically because you're deserting in a such a way that it looks noble. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't look like rebellion. Rebellion looks like leaving church, never coming Married people running off with somebody else's partner. That looks like rebellion. It's, that's obvious rebellion. But here, he's saying, you are deserting, but it's far more nuanced, but in many ways, incredibly dangerous. Because he says, it, in fact, it doesn't look like a lack of passion. It kind of, what he's describing, looks like people who are being zealous. Because it's the kind of zealousness that says, hey, you just need to add a few more things to your spiritual life. Add some things on top. And then God was going to be really, really favorable towards you. Then you'll be fully in. Then you will be seen as being really committed if you just add some additional things in. In other words, these guys have turned up in Galatians and said, it's good so far, 
but you just need to adopt a few more things in. And if you do that, then you're fully in. That looks like zealousness. Yeah? That looks like being noble. It looks like a kind of higher view of spirituality. And that's what's so dangerous about this, because it doesn't look like rebellion in the way, or desertion in the way we think about it. It looks like, actually, acceleration. It looks like, hey, really spiritual people. They look zealous. Just do a few more things on top of faith in Jesus, and then God's going to be really pleased with you. That's what's so dangerous here. And that's why it's so deadly to our souls. Because at its root, what they're saying to the Galatian Christians is this. Uh, faith in Jesus is not enough. The cross of Christ is not sufficient. The work of the Holy Spirit in your life is not enough to lead you into obedience. You need to add some things. And if you add them, God will be satisfied. That's what's so deadly about what they're beginning to believe. Now, if I was to ask you, for those of us who are Christians in the room, and I don't know where everybody is on their walk, but if you're a Christian here, if I was to ask you, do you believe that faith in Jesus alone is enough for salvation? If I was to ask you that, I imagine you would say, yes, I just, I think, I'm, I believe that faith in Jesus, the cross of Christ, is enough for me to be saved. Yeah? I imagine we would all sign up to that, right? If I was to ask you, do you need to add anything to the work of Jesus in your life in order to be accepted by, by God? I imagine you would say, no, we don't need to add anything. The cross of Christ is sufficient. But the truth is, most Christians I know, myself included, easily drift into a way of thinking where we t- end up thinking that God is not fully accepting of us unless we do some extra things, right? So we might think, hey, listen, the cross of Christ is sufficient for me to get saved and be forgiven, but I need to do these things in order for God to be favorable towards me. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And we kind of think of the Christian life in two parts. We think there's the free bit, right? I come to Jesus he forgives me the cross of Christ. His, his, so his um, sacrifice is sufficient for me. And that's the free bit. But then I become a Christian. And then we think that this is the second half. And the second half is where I start to work out my salvation. And I start to, we don't talk like this, but I start to pay him back. And this is the bit where I start to bring my stuff. And very subtly, we start to think, do you know what? It is about faith in Jesus but it's not faith in Jesus alone. I need to add some things on top. For God to be fully accepting of me, to be favorable towards me, to love me, right? I, I need to do some things. Now, listen, I'm not saying that we shouldn't live godly, obedient lives. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be certain disciplines that we live out in our lives, like reading the Bible and praying. But if we start treating any of those as ways of making God accept us, or be favourable to us. We have totally misunderstood the gospel. Right? So have a look at the table behind the back. I know there's, there's still some stuff. Just have a little look at the table. Basically, you don't bring anything to the table, do you? You just come and receive. And that's the gospel, is you come and receive. Right? You're hungry, thirsty, you come and receive. But often what happens in the Christian life is we switch it around and we go, actually the gospel is we bring stuff to the table, and then maybe God will be pleased with me. I'm coming, bringing my thing, and if I do enough things, then maybe God will accept me. If I read my Bible enough, maybe God will be good to me. I'm forgiven, but he's not happy with me, is basically what we think. He's not favorable. 
But Paul writes in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. He's going, no, 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 it's completely done. There's no first and second half, in other words. The whole story is a story of grace. Not grace and then our works. Okay, acceptance is simply on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice at the cross. Uh, But Paul is writing to a church who is starting to think something radically different. And I would say that we're all prone to think a little bit like that because we live in a world that goes, there's no such thing as a free meal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? You know, you invite me round for dinner, I feel like I should invite you round for dinner. (laughs) I feel like I owe you. I owe him, so therefore, right? So we kind of go, this is nuts. How can they possibly think like this? But the truth is we all start to think like this. We think, faith in Jesus, but I need to do some things on top. And then maybe God will be pleased with me. And Paul writes, says, that is desertion. In fact, he says, that's no gospel at all. Because what you're saying is it's faith in Jesus plus, and then God's okay with you. And that is no gospel at all. And if we've started to think like that, Paul is like going, no, 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 come back. Come right back. Because that's not how it is. It looks noble. It looks spiritual. It looks zealous, right? Can I do all these things? I'm going to be very righteous. It looks zealous, but actually it's saying it's completely missing the point. It's like a fake gospel. I read, I read this week about a German artist in the 80s and 90s, I can't remember his name, and actually into the 2000s, who um, basically was a self-taught artist who kind of got into creating fake pieces of art and selling them as masterpieces, undiscovered masterpieces. And he starts low level and becomes quite good. By the end of it, he literally was selling pieces of art for millions of dollars in, through, the, the, through the most significant auction houses, you know, Sotheby's and all sorts of other places, well-known people were buying these things for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he did it for like 30-odd years until one day it starts to unravel and someone starts to realise they're all fakes. But for 30-odd years, this guy created these, self-taught, had created these things that people, even, you know, even art experts were like, yep, that's an original, that's an original. They tested them, that's an original, that's an original. And once, he gets, once it gets the kind of like reputation, there's originals, and he's a dealer, everyone starts to buy them. The guy makes millions of dollars. Millions and millions of dollars. It's like one of the biggest art scams ever. And then one day, it's like, that's a total fake. The problem is, you can't tell because it looks like the original. And Paul is writing to the Galatians again, this looks like the original, but it's a total fake. And if you think like this, if you allow your heart to go this way, if you really believe this stuff, you will end up with no gospel at all. In fact, in Galatians 5, it says, you're trying to be justified by the law, but you have fallen away from grace. You're trying to do things to earn some sense of acceptance, but you've totally fallen away from grace. So, what does he do? He says this. A couple of things I want to add, and then we're going to close. He says this. You're deserting, and you're deserting, he says, Christ. See, Christianity is about meeting and following a person. You know, we might kind of go, oh, they're kind of deserting the faith, or maybe they're leaving church, or they're... But actually, what Paul says, no, 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 you're deserting Christ. It's like... 
Christianity at its very heart is about meeting and following a person. It's about knowing Jesus and following him. And that word desertion means to fall away, to turn away from, to transfer allegiance somewhere else. And it's a present tense. So he's saying you are actively in the process of turning away. You are leaving right now. And the great irony is, is obviously he's saying you're trying to do things somehow to worship Jesus more adequately. But as you do it, you're in fact, you're deserting him. So you think you're doing stuff more to please him, but as you're trying to do all these additional things as a way of trying to earn your way back in, you're actually actively leaving him at the same time. And that's the irony of it. So, and then he has this wonderful turning antidote. He says, here's the antidote. He says, and this whole letter is about, well, what do we do in response to this? And we'll unpack it again and again and again. But then he says this, Um, he reminds them how it all started. For those of you who are married, someone occasionally will say to you, how did you guys meet? Anybody ever ask you that question? People ask me and Sarah that question. If you ask Sarah, you get a different answer to how if you ask me. I'm I'm the one who tells the true story, Sarah, you know, no, we all have a slightly, we have a slightly different version of the story, right? But they go, well, tell me, tell me back to the beginning. What happened at the beginning? How did it all begin? How did you guys end up getting married? People ask that question. That's a normal question. And Paul goes, I want to take you right back to the beginning. So you're deserting, you're leaving, you're ending up with no gospel, with something completely hollow. It's going to ruin your life. In other (coughs) words, Paul is saying, stop. Like the car park attendants in our church car park. Stop. And he goes, now tell me what happened at the beginning. He takes them back and he goes, you were called. You are deserting the one who called you. If you're a Christian here, it's really important you know how it all started. You might become a Christian because someone invited you, a friend invited you to church. You may have gone through a personal crisis that brought you to a sense of needing to find out about faith. There might be all sorts. You may have wandered into a church looking for help. I don't know how it happened. You may have grown up in a church family, a family that went to church and there was faith that way. There's all different avenues and journeys we go on to come into a place of faith. But ultimately, Paul says, it doesn't matter which avenue or which journey you went on humanly, fundamentally underneath it, the only reason you're a Christian is because God called you. You were called, he says. God called you. In other words, God initiated towards you. So he's saying, I want to take you back to the beginning And I want you to understand the only reason there is faith in your heart in Jesus is because God called you in the first place. Now, when you call someone, when God calls people, it's not the same as when you and I call people. In our house, people call people all the time, mostly me, (laughs) from all over the house. Occasionally, I call them, and strangely, they don't always respond. (laughs) I'm not going to name any names. But I live with Sarah and Ben and Joel, okay? And it could be any of those people, right? And I call them, and I don't know if they're going to respond. We used to have a dog. Uh, we've got a dog now, but we used to have another dog who literally, you let her off the leash and she's gone. And I would call her and it'd be like, no, it's occasionally she'd come near you. And then she'd run off. She was like, man, she was sweet, but she was a nightmare. She would not respond, okay? I'd call her name and she would not, purposefully, she wouldn't respond, okay? So my call is ineffective sometimes. But when God calls, God's calls creates what it commands. It's completely different. So you see it in creation. God says, let there be light. Bang. 
Let there be stars. So he calls them into being and he creates what he commands. Jesus goes to Lazarus, who's dead in the tomb. And what does he do? How does, how does Lazarus come to life? He calls him. He calls his name. And what he, com- what he calls, he creates. And I think it's just a fantastic picture. Romans 8. Uh, we are called according to his purpose. And that purpose is to be conformed to the image of his son. So Paul goes, I want to take you right back to the beginning. You're deserting. But remember, how did it begin? It began, he calls you. And when he calls you, he brings you to life. You were dead, and he brings you to life. In other words, Paul is saying, you didn't contribute very much, did you, at the start? When you became a Christian, what did you contribute to the whole deal? Only your need. All you contributed was the fact that you needed rescuing. Okay, that's all you brought to the deal. You didn't bring any good works. You didn't bring anything that qualified you. You weren't getting to God in any way. All that you brought was the fact that you needed rescuing. You were dead. You were lost. You were far away. You were completely unable to rescue yourself. That is all you brought. God calls your name and brings you to life. And you've come from death to life. That's what happened. And Paul goes, I want you to remember how it started. He brings you. He calls you. And that's all you contributed and he does it because he's saying that's how it began and that is how it continues there isn't a free bit and then a bit you pay back okay he's always the giver and we are always the receivers and then he has this little phrase this is where we get in which i just think is beautiful he goes we called you to live in the grace of christ i think all of us pretty much all of us Maybe one or two different, but most people in the room grew up somewhere else than other in Rotterdam. You lived somewhere else, right? And now you live here. And Paul is saying, you used to live somewhere else. Okay? Where you lived, was, there was no life. And now God called you into life. And he's called you to live in the grace of God. He's called you to live in a land of somewhere. So you're living physically in Rotterdam... Now, as a Christian, you're called to live in grace. Not a free bit at the start, and now you've got to work it out, now you've got to earn your way back. No, you've been called into the grace of God. That's where you're going to live. And Paul is saying, don't venture somewhere else, because you end up with no gospel at all. He's always the giver, and we are always the receivers. I'm going to read this. I will use that quote, Lolly. There's a little quote here by a guy called Jerry Bridges who wrote a book called The Discipline of Grace, and we're going to close with this. He said this. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. I think that's a great quote. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace and your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Let's stand together. Jed's going to help us. Uh, we're going to use another song to close. Um, but I'm just going to pray.